It's back to school time across the world. But teaching has looked a bit different this year. Under lockdown restrictions imposed by COVID-19, millions of students from primary schools through to universities shifted to learning from home. Smartphones, wireless internet and Zoom, widely available in richer countries, allowed students to continue learning remotely in ways that just a decade ago would have been impossible. But the pandemic has also exposed inequalities of access to the serious detriment of educational outcomes in both high and low income countries. Proponents of digital learning platforms, say education technology or ed tech, can radically transform how education is delivered. They say it can bring a far better education to far more people and help solve what is a growing global learning crisis. But progress in the sector has been slow. Classrooms have barely changed in the last 50 years. Something big had to happen to disrupt that, and it did, in the form of the COVID crisis. Today, to the key issue of school, we must apply downward pressure, further downward pressure on that upward curve by closing the schools. I am ordering the closure of all K-12 school buildings. The issues around our schools. 98.8% of our schools have closed down. Uh, learning uh, is still occurring. Distance learning, the online learning. Abandoning in-person teaching has made some of the aspirations of EdTech a sudden necessity. So will those experiences of remote teaching and learning speed up innovation in the sector? Or have they exposed flaws in the idea? This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. Innovation in education in recent years has centred around personalised learning, and in particular the promise of so-called adaptive learning platforms, software that learns individual students' strengths and weaknesses and tweaks lesson content to meet their needs. For an example of adaptive learning and practice, look at Century Tech, a British firm whose software can be found in primary and secondary schools across 12 countries. Century's dashboard analytics provide a continuous real-time picture of student progress, spotting those who are struggling and those who need more of a challenge. The machine will track every movement the student makes or every tap on a tablet. And by calculating behaviours in how you move, it uses machine learning, so it will look at patterns and correlations in how students are moving, where they're based, which curriculum um, they, they are on and, and signed up to, and it will start to analyse how they behave. That's Priya Lakani, the founder and CEO of Century Tech. So at Century, we focus on solving two problems on the front line of education. Those two problems are that the one-size-fits-all delivery of education still exists in most classrooms today, and that's very much, if you think about when you went to school or your parents or grandparents went to school, teacher stands at the front and lectures to 25 plus children in front of them. We wanted to solve that problem by providing technology in the teaching and learning environment to personalise for every child. So the idea is we use a blend of artificial intelligence technology with neuroscience and learning science to learn how every student learns. And by tracking how they're learning and learning their behaviours with the academic content, their behaviours on the system in terms of focus levels, effort levels, memory function, emotions, etc. We can then 
identify what they ought to learn next to plug gaps in knowledge, to provide every student with a tailored and individualised learning journey. To hear technology-driven learning in action, we spoke to the students and teachers at Dubai Scholars, an independent school in Dubai who've been using Sentry in their classrooms. It doesn't just give us the information, it shows us what we require to improve in. And it has made my assessment much more easier. I think it has completely changed uh, the dynamics of a classroom. Technology has changed everything, right from classroom discipline to how you're going to get across uh, instructions to how you're going to really get across a topic. At the end of every topic, Sentry gives us an assessment task to help us measure our learning. These assessments are fun and interesting. I do not have to wait for my teacher to give my test results as Sentry gives my score immediately after the test is over. It has really pushed me to really strategize a lot more. Priya Lakhani again. The second problem that we wanted to solve that's especially prevalent in the UK is that 82% of teachers consider quitting their jobs in the next three years. And when you look at the detail as to why, it's because they often spend more than 60% of their time, so more than half of their time on admin, micro-marking, micro-assessing, trying to figure out, you know, how to intervene with the child and also on administrative tasks like communication with parents. And so at Century, we thought, well, if a machine can track how students learning online and then use big data analytics and analyse that information, we could avoid the micro-marking and micro-assessing of teachers and just provide teachers with the information um, at the point of need as to where an intervention between a human and a human needs to take place. And so that's what the teaching and learning platform has, has set, set out to do. When it comes to the promise of education technology, it doesn't take a massive leap of imagination to consider that education might be having its Netflix moment. I'm Lee Simpson. I'm the co-founder of an innovation practice called Brink and the director of innovation for the global edtech hub, which is a hub designed to surface the best evidence for use across governments, mostly in low middle income countries. And this work is supported by UK Aid, the World Bank and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Instead of children being put into a classroom because they are the same age or because they happen to be in the same kind of geographic area, you can imagine technology delivering content that is best suited to that individual learner and allows them to move at their own pace, kind of like the same as the difference between sitting in front of broadcast television or consuming Netflix. The dream is, of course, that there is kind of an infrastructure play on education technology that makes the simple business of running a school easier and frees up teachers' time. So, you know, a lot of teachers in the markets that we're working in still have to do things like leave the classroom to collect school fees or have to grapple with the complication of having really, really large classroom sizes and don't have the training materials or the training themselves to know how to do things like simple timetabling, which can be transformative for their experience at work. And then, of course, we know that mastery learning and learning at the right level and progressing at your own pace is the way to affect the greatest learning outcomes for children. But that's really, really difficult to scale when you're still in that kind of broadcast model of sitting in a classroom and being taught by a person at the top of the classroom. So there is for sure a, a kind of image and a, a, an easy to conjure picture of technology delivering mastery learning at scale. But it is, of course, the devil is in the detail. It is about the pedagogy and making sure that the distribution of these technologies is as equitable as possible. 
And according to Lee, the pace of change is speeding up as a result of COVID-19. The pandemic has ushered in a kind of era of energy collaboration and a greater sense of pace and the art of the possible than might have otherwise been the case. Across all of our work, we're seeing you know, deals done and ideas being realised, doing things in weeks that might have taken months or, or years to do otherwise. And it's not before time. Regardless of the pandemic, the world was looking at a learning crisis. You know, the stats around learning outcomes and the quality of education, especially in low-income countries, are dumbfounding. So at the moment, over 90% of primary-age children in low-income countries and about 75% in lower-middle-income countries, and that's around 330 million children, are not expected to read or do basic maths by the end of primary school. Um, and that was before the pandemic. So um, you can see that the job to be done here with, with for education writ large and for education technology is, is huge. The learning crisis was certainly an alarm bell that was sounded by many of us a number of years back. Jenny Perlman Robinson is a senior fellow with the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. Is that although children were going to school, they weren't learning the fundamental basic skills they needed to know. And so a child could spend five years in, in primary or elementary school and still leave without knowing the basics of reading, writing, and math. We talk about still those millions of children who are out of school, those 10% who still do not have the opportunity to go to school. And then we talk about the children who drop out, or in other words, pushed out of school. So they may start school, but unable to continue. And so the work that we've really been doing at the Center for Universal Education around thinking about scaling is this question of not just what is it that children need to get into school and learn these valuable skills, but how do we actually address the magnitude, the number of children who are out of school, knowing that there are millions, hundreds of millions of children who don't have the opportunity to have an education. Working with Jenny Robinson is Emiliana Vegas co-director of the Center for Universal Education at Brookings. Vegas and her colleagues have studied how education technology can improve learning outcomes around the world. For example, uh, there is a great study by Karthik Morali-Darin and Alejandro Ganimian where they looked at a, a program called MindSparks in India. And what the program offered was a way of providing a personalized instruction at the level that the student was in, in math and in their local languages, which in India there are many. <laughs> um, and what the researchers found is that it was particularly effective in accelerating progress in learning the basic skills in math and in language for students who were the furthest behind. In countries like India, often the challenge at the students who are uh, very poor at the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds is that foundational learning skills, so children being able to read by grade two or grade three. This is Srida Rajagopalan, the creator of MindSpark. Learning all, you know, arithmetic, mathematical, numeracy skills by grade five. These are areas of concern. And these are areas, again, where technology can provide the backup support where students get the practice, but the practice is is designed based on the learning gaps that they are showing. And the same applies for conceptual learning at higher levels. So the, the role of technology is not like a video or the use of 
animations that make lessons exciting, but it's really in the ability to personalize. And of course, we have the fact that it is scalable at a relatively low cost of providing uh, tablets or low-cost computers. So I think that is the promise of, of technology, and it can really help countries leapfrog stages that they would otherwise have to go through over a long period of time. Despite widespread adoption of smartphones and internet connectivity across most of the world, a lack of access to fundamental technologies can still pose problems. Emiliana Vegas again. In many systems, there are still infrastructure constraints in developing countries, in particular in the poorest areas of even middle-income countries. There is lack of uh, electricity and connectivity, and that's sort of an easy fix. But more importantly, teachers in particular may not be familiar with, for example, adaptive learning software and may not be comfortable integrating it into their classrooms. And so, you know, equipping teachers with appropriate training related to the software you want to integrate or the types of technology and having explicit goals as to why you're choosing a, a specific technology. Past examples of technological hubris include the One Laptop Per Child program, which 15 years ago promised to provide low-cost tablets to children around the world and in turn revolutionise education. Give them the power to learn. Imagine that you give a laptop to a child and that one child can come up with these great ideas and you give them the power to learn, the power to connect with all ideas around the world. Imagine the difference that we can make. Our goal is one laptop per child. Some even argued that we would no longer need school buildings and teachers, that kids would have access to information and would be able to learn. And what we have found is that there was a lot of attention placed on developing devices and software, but not a lot of attention placed on how to really affect the teaching and learning process or what we call the instructional core. Um, and technology can really, uh, if used appropriately and, and thought of carefully, can alter that triangle and can make certain things, um, certain interactions much more engaging, uh, much more scalable. Um, but you have to really understand well, where is it that technology can complement the work of teachers vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, what was expected initially, which was to substitute it. Srida Rajakapalan agrees. So the fact that, that the softwares are available and understood kind of helps mitigate the problem that, you know, hardware has to be provided. But, you know, I would come to some more basic points here which kind of affect the use of, of technology. And these relate to the way education is organized and the way... Uh, the outcomes of education are seen. And, and I think this is a very critical point to understand. In countries, uh, especially the poorer countries, including in India, education in practice tends to be organized around inputs. So the entire focus of education is to, you know, make sure that schools are available, make sure that teachers are there, make sure teachers are in school and children are able to reach school and less on outcomes, you know, are children learning? What are the learning gaps? You know, are there patterns in terms of areas where there are certain types of learning gaps? In an input-based model, edtech will either not be a priority, and you know, you have examples like the one laptop per child, which basically said that, you know, we will give one laptop per child. And, and that's an input model because it focuses more on providing that, that input. In fact, what happens is that you provide computers and find after a year or two or three, 
that the computers are not used. So I find that the focus of learning being on the outcomes that need to be attained is a good way to ensure that even the edtech that we have is measured against this goal of whether it is helping achieve those outcomes or not. And it's in those kind of situations that software like personalized adaptive learning softwares, which are able to kind of show these, uh, uh, these outcomes, help. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management. Marianne Johnson, financial analyst at Pictay, sees opportunities for AI technologies to improve education and personalize it in new ways. AI tools are really revolutionizing the education experience. I think personalized learning is suited to the individual. Everybody's different. They have different learning speeds or capabilities, and the AI tool can identify this and improve the overall experience for both the student and the teacher. Today, the emphasis is moving from getting children into school to providing education quality. Technological innovation is playing a big role. Adaptive learning systems are already personalizing children's timetables based on their unique strengths and weaknesses via tablets, mobile, and desktop software. It isn't just the students that will benefit from the introduction of artificial intelligence. Marianne believes a huge change is coming for those who stand at the front of the classroom as well. AI tools help teachers do everything from assignment marking to lesson planning, freeing up their time to help students face-to-face. This is creating a blend of digital and in-person learning, where children carry out exercises on their laptops and then go through it in person with their teachers. Some of the same innovations are also being applied to adult education. In the future, all of us will need to build our skills continually as automation threatens more routine jobs. EdTech will help us to do this more efficiently and cost-effectively. Innovation is now more important than ever. COVID-19 has forced schools and universities to adopt new remote learning techniques. But Marianne sees significant opportunity in improving the quality of education these technologies allow. Adapting will take time, but we expect that some of these changes will stick as children and teachers familiarize themselves with their new tools. Tech companies are also looking to enhance their educational software in terms of accessibility, which could drive further uptake. For companies, we see sizable opportunities in developing more innovative education materials to upskill staff. The learning and development market is worth around 370 billion US dollars, growing by more than a third in the past decade as companies look to develop a digital-ready workforce. This rush has led to new partnerships between public and private organizations, with courses delivered to staff through a combination of digital conferences, team workshops, supplemental skills courses, and certifications. That was Marianne Johnson of Pictay Wealth Management. This year, millions of students from primary schools through to universities shifted to learning from home. With the school desk becoming a kitchen table and the lecture hall a virtual conference room, The COVID crisis has forced educators to find alternatives to -to face-to-face instruction. It has, like it has to many sectors of the economy and society, accelerated digital transformation in education, but it has also exposed the challenges and inequalities. Like a lot of other areas of life, the problems that are on the ground on the day-to-day basis have been exacerbated and, and certainly highlighted by the pandemic. And in our world, what that means is that the promise of edtech isn't evenly distributed. 
Lee Simpson, the director of Global EdTech Hub, a non-profit initiative exploring how technology can improve learning outcomes. The thing that tends to happen when we're in emergency response, we're in this kind of rush of trying to get things done and to respond quickly, people are also making some basic mistakes. So what we see is the mistakes of distributing technology alone and, and hoping that the, the rest of the job will do itself. But of course, on the contrary, just distributing the technology without thinking through the pedagogy or measuring the effective implementation of that technology is almost a certain failure. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, Simpson and the EdTech Hub researchers have amassed research, evidence and advice on the use of EdTech to respond to COVID-19. So in Afghanistan, where a, a large proportion of the education content has been pivoted onto radio programming, we're supporting the creation of uh, a teacher call centre, ostensibly, where children who are working through the curriculum content on radio have access to teachers when they get stuck or when they need additional support with the content. In Uganda... Again, there, the, the instruction has moved on to radio and we're thinking about additional human factors. So how can we use siblings or teachers to support the delivery of that content in, in order to bolster the radio instruction? And interestingly, in places like Lebanon with refugee communities, we're actually looking at WhatsApp because that is the most ubiquitous uh, digital platform that's available for those groups and thinking about ways that we could distribute and disseminate education content through WhatsApp. So you'll see that it's really a case of kind of needs must and just leaning into uh, what's available and trying to make the most of stacking different technologies and creating a kind of service around uh, the technologies that are available. Despite clear challenges, experts are hopeful that the experiences of this year could open minds to the use of technologies to transform the delivery of education. Sridhar Rajagopalan again. So the impact of COVID has been, I would say, extremely bad in the short term and is likely to be positive in the long term. So what COVID has done is that it has kind of put technology kind of front and center. Just the fact that hundreds of thousands of people tried the technology and tried education-based technology and adaptive learning products like MindSpark. Till then, a kind of a mindset again that Education is only that which happens physically when I go into and there is a teacher teaching me. What's required then to scale up education technology? It seems the technology is here, technology is relatively cheap and ubiquitous. Is now the moment for EdTech? So the promise of EdTech is there. You don't have to squint too hard to see it. But there is a reason why education, unlike a lot of other sectors, hasn't really progressed in digital transformation as quickly as some others. And that's because... Working in education technology and working in education is really working into an entire complex and, and interdependent system. And it's especially hard to implement uh, across countries because you have to think about things like who owns the curriculum? How do you vet and control things like accreditation and progress? Who's the customer? So who, who's paying for this product at the end of the day? There is um, still work to be done on business model innovation and thinking about how the kinds of technologies and the kinds of access that those who are wealthier in these, in these countries have access to, how it might extend to those who are less fortunate. And so we are looking at ways that we can explore business model innovation that might look something like a cross-subsidy model or something else where we can extend the reach of those products so that the distribution is more, is more democratic and more equitable. 
how do you even begin to imagine the potential of education technology if you don't have electricity or you don't have internet connection? So there is a kind of broader infrastructure piece at play as well in, in the greater scheme of things. For some, returning to the traditional teaching model after the pandemic would be a huge missed opportunity. Emiliana Vegas. So in order to really transform education, all countries and international institutions are going to have to uh, really cough up, as we would say, the resources required to be able to facilitate the kind of technology needed, the access to connectivity, not just devices, and also the training and support to teachers and to students to, to kind of engage in, in technology in these ways. And so I think um, that is for us one of the biggest concerns and also one of the biggest areas of opportunities. We are working with lots of other partners um, to raise awareness, to mobilize policymakers and civil society actors to advocate really for uh, prioritizing education in government budgets, also in the investments that the international community provides to, to developing countries. Srida Rajagopalan again. I think there are absolutely huge opportunities and I, I don't think we are anywhere near solved. And I'll just explain what I mean. I'll, I'll take a simple example, right? So, you know, let's take voice recognition. If you look at the need for voice recognition in education, here we need voice recognition to work in a diagnostic way. Uh, what that means is that when the child says something which has an error in it, a good teacher would actually point out the error, identify the error, and then uh, highlight what the correct way of saying it is. And, and that turns out to be much more uh, difficult. In fact, I would argue that there is really no product today that's able to give high-quality, accurate diagnostic feedback, even close to what a teacher can do. Education in the future is going to be a combination of you know, content and technology, which means that the, the nature of the, the, the content itself will change based on what the technology allows. So I think there's a huge opportunity uh, in this space and uh, we've just scratched the surface in terms of the use of technology in education. That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. And you can find out more about the series along with articles and further reading at newfoundations.economist.com.